The Thundermen have headed out for another real-world assignment. They also have an assignment from Hagelmiss that they are working on, plus a shopping trip. We listen to episode 13 of Taz Graduation, so you know what that means. It's time for Talking Taz. Hello everyone and welcome back to Talking Taz, your weekly journey through the worlds of the Adventure Zone graduation. With you as always is me, your host and producer, PJ, and with me as always is my lovely co-host, Lauren. That's me. Lauren, what'd you think of this episode? I went through a whole range of emotions because it was like, okay, I need to like concentrate and learn all of this lore that they're laying on me, but then I got stressed out when they were going there because something happened and then like, yeah, I was I was a whole a whole range. But I did enjoy it, and I'm still at a loss as to what these boys are going to do to get this apple, but... Yeah, it was a wild one, and I'm very curious to see this little mini arc progress. Yeah, for sure. So let's jump into it. We started off the day after the last episode, and it's the morning of their assignment. And the boys have leveled up. They did! They've been lifting and doing math, so now they're level five. That's two... Did you think they did those things at the same time? Yeah, I usually am lifting weights that have a math textbook attached to them. So as it gets back to me, I can read it and then lift it back up and lift it, you know. Oh, that's not how I do math. But like, I'm not good at math. So there you go. Yeah, I need to do it your way. Fitzroy took a level in Sorcerer. So now he's three levels in Barbarian, two in Sorcerer. And now he has Sorcery Points. I love Sorcery Points. And that's going to just go insane when he gets to Sorcerer level three. It's going to go wild. Yeah, I love sorcery points. So I'm excited that he gets them now so we can see what he's going to do. Heck yeah. Argo now has a plus three to his proficiency. His stealth and acrobatics have increased to plus 10. Jesus. And his sneak attack is now 3d6 damage. So he's starting to get to that really fun part of Rogue where you start becoming kind of like the best at everything. Heck yes. Where you almost can't fail a stealth check. And like if you sneak attack, you're gonna do mass damage. Yeah, like no matter what. And he also gets one of the best things, which is uncanny dodge. So as a reaction, he can reduce an attack's damage by half. Fearbog got nothing. He got nothing. He just got like some boring spells, like super listening, not hearing, and receipt finding. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, obviously he got some spells, had some cool stuff. But yeah, Justin is like, I got, I got a rock. (laughs) I got a rock. It's like you've mentioned before where... No matter what happens at a level up, everyone else thinks they the other players got something better than them. Which I got called out for. You did get called out for. Our group because was Because one like, of my players, excuse. shout out to Rebecca, yeah. listens to the podcast and she was like, why are you talking mess about us on the podcast? Well, here you go, Rebecca. I'm talking more mess. Technically, I started it this time, so we're both to yell blame. Yell at Lauren. You can yell at both of us. You don't have to yell just at me. It's okay. Just at Lauren. Oh, no. <laughs> Straight up, if after this episode comes out, the first thing you do is yell at Lauren about this, I will give you an inspiration point. <gasps> no, don't bribe her. That's like, that has to be illegal somewhere. <laughs> I am God in this world. Not in all of the worlds, just in, in our the world day where day I one. give inspiration points, I am God. This is the podcast is not in your world. <laughs> Otherwise, I am like a meager nothing. You're just a worm. What? Me? I'm just a worm. I'm just a worm. I don't actually think PJ's a worm like point of order he just <laughs> point of order he just quotes that all the time from labyrinth so yeah griffin says he'd rather they level up twice so he says fitzroy and fearbog are going to go do push-ups in between scenes to get to level six as fast as possible 
Because, I mean, Argo already got the coolest stuff this round. Yeah, Argo definitely got the coolest stuff for sure. I mean, I still think sorcery points are really cool and druid spells can do crazy things. But yeah. clearly Argo was the one who got the best stuff for their class. Yeah. The boys go to collect their items from the bursar and have received 200 gold piece from the school to shop at Barnes and Nobles. Yay, we go back and go shopping. Yeah. Master Fearbolg purchases the navigational yarn, which will help the user find their way. The ball rolling to a location they tell it to, and Justin says it's underpriced at 50 gold piece for the dark purposes he has in mind to use it for. Which, yeah, Justin has a history of <laughs> abusing his magical items. Uh, I mean, yeah, he's a genius. Oh, for sure. He then takes the pocket watch of second chances that grants a creature the use of indomitable once per long rest. And the jar of bees, which is what it says on the tin. It is a jar of bees. You throw it at someone and they're going to go get stung to did. Unless it opens near you and then you're going to get stung to did. That is true. It is all about dex checks, baby. It is. Fitzroy wanted the yarn, but he's going to continue Griffin's dream of becoming an in-game Pokemon master and takes a few Trapper Keepers, which can contain a creature up to size small. <laughs> I get it because it's not a Trapper Keeper like we know it as. It's a Trapper Keeper, act- which is a like, genius yeah. way of renaming that. That It's perfect. It's a literal Trapper Keeper. So good. Yeah. But I was just like imagining Fitzroy stuffing like small redemption into a Trapper Keeper. I was definitely thinking the same thing. And I was like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> Travis was surprised saying he expected him to take the early bird 5000 which is a gauntlet that, when activated, creates a spectral blackbird and can bring an item to their aid. Griffin says he'll take it if he can fit it into the story that it's Leon he's summoning rather than a blackbird, and Travis agrees, which I was like, heck yeah. Heck yeah, that makes me so excited. I really hope they don't just forget about this item and never use it. God, I hope not either, because that's... Because like he literally created like a super cool story thing. I don't know if he's going to remember about it. <laughs> I God, I hope he does. Not only because I love Leon, but just because I love his relationship with Fitzroy. So it would continue to foster that for me. But And he would act as his squire. I mean, yeah, Fitzroy really enjoys the idea that he has a spectral squire. <laughs> he wants a spectral hawk squire. God, please remember this, Griffin. Please. Yeah. He actually checks in with Leon to make sure he's cool with the arrangement, and he is. He also picks up an ink eraser, which can erase ink and stores it in the eraser, thereby granting the user the ability to reveal hidden message by using the stored ink, which I thought was a super interesting, because I was like, okay, you save ink, but you save it the way it was written, and I was like, oh, that's so cool. Yeah, I kept visualizing the diary in Chamber of Secrets where, like, oh, yeah, for it sure. soaks in the ink, but then uses the ink to, like, yeah, I'm excited about this item. Argo wanted the early bird 5000, which is so funny because the fear bull got the yarn, which Fitzroy wanted, and then Fitzroy got the early bird, which Argo wanted. So they all wanted the same things, but someone else got yeah. them. But instead, he buys the Slapsidian, a knife that acts like a slap bracelet and acts as a plus one dagger, which I love. Oh, yeah. No, that's perfect for a rogue. I just also love that it's a slap bracelet. I love slap bracelets. Come on, 90s. He then gets a monocle of misdirection to gain advantage on deception and insight checks once per day. Argo has such a strong look with his handlebar mustache and monocle. a monocle. <laughs> and a slap bracelet. <laughs> And don't forget the Jodpers. Oh, I could never forget the Jodpers. But also, like, man, a rogue having once a day advantage on deception or insight? That's insane. I mean, it's already so hard for him to fail those checks anyway, but the fact that he could potentially roll just insane numbers is crazy. 
in the informative hospital that Fitzroy helped redeem is set up in Barnes and Nobles selling some artisanal cheeses. I was so happy that that came back around. Yeah, I like that he had his own like whole little arc somewhere he left and he did say he wanted to sell artisanal cheeses. That was his whole thing. Yeah, he's like, no. And look, he's accomplished his goals so fast. He did. He's like, I'm not going to be bad anymore. I've turned over a new leaf. I want to sell artisanal cheeses. And it wasn't just a line. He like went out and lived his full fantasy. He did it. He did it. We stand a king that follows his dreams. Ugh. If you can. Nope. That's a misquote. The if you can dream it, you can do it. It's technically What's not. What's the actual quote? I thought that was a real quote. It is. It is. A quote, but it's misquoted from the actual quote. I don't know what the actual quote is, though, so... We'll put it in post. We'll do it live! Kale, the professor in charge of placement and real-world assignments, gave the Thundermen the following briefing before they left school. In the dead center of the Great Southern Meadow rose an apple tree. Its trunk was gnarled and gray, but its leaves were perfect and green. A little too perfect. Mm. Once a year, this tree yields only two perfect apples that are half red and half gold. The tree is surrounded by a magical barrier created by two herds of centaurs to make sure the fruit remains untouched. At the appointed time of harvest, the two herds make their way from their separate homes, and when both parties are present, they use their combined magic to lower the barrier and collect the fruit. The centaurs of the valley believe that by splitting the apple in half along the red and gold divide, they can read the future in the shape and placement of the seeds. Sort of like tea leaf reading. Mm -hmm. The centaurs of the woods believe that by burning the apple in a ceremonial fire, they will please the spirit of the Scarlet Woods and have bountiful hunts and protection for another year. When the two herds meet, it's tense, but without conflict. This year, however, for the first time ever, the tree only produced one apple. The centaurs of the valley believe that they are the ones who need it most, for without it, they cannot prepare for the changing of the seasons, and their survival is uncertain. The centaurs of the woods believe that they should have the apple, unless the spirit should become enraged and drive them from their home. The stakes in this are so high. Again, and the fact that it's not even just like, you need to figure out which one of them gets it. It's, you need to steal it. You need to figure out a way so neither of them get it. Wild. Ugh. This assignment is meant to teach them that being a hero or villain is not always black and white. One person's champion is another person's malefactor. I was today years old when I learned malefactor i had never heard that word before travis used it <laughs> uh i i mean it's a cool word i like that he's you know he didn't just say as another person's like fill in or anything i like that he was like malefactor i like fancy words well you are a bit of a fancy lad you know i blame it on reading way too many big word books as a kid you do have a very impressive vocabulary you know who i attribute it to who calvin and hobbs you do you've told me that before yeah, um, Calvin and Hobbes never shied away from using big words, even though it was a kid's like comic strip. Mm-hmm. But, you know, not necessarily just aimed at kids. So as a kid, I read it and I always looked up what these words meant. So like, that's why I know so many words now. Who wrote Calvin and Hobbes? Bill Watterson wrote Calvin and Hobbes. Well, you go, Bill Watterson. You go in your crazy recluse life. He was a recluse? There's like one picture of him that exists. And like he wrote Calvin and Hobbes and he was like, I'm done. Like, once he finished the story, he was done. And, you know, people have offered to make it into shows, but make it into merchandise. And he's always said, no, he's like, I'm not going to let my characters become, like, property. And he, like, no one really knows him. No one really talks to him. Outside of people in the comics industry that, like, were his friends at the time. And, like, yeah, he people don't know much about Bill Watterson other than what he lets them know. Wow. This is now a Calvin and Hobbes podcast. <laughs> 
I know nothing about or very little about Calvin and Hobbes, so it would be an educational podcast. <laughs> Fitzroy's party will be paired up with the centaurs of the Scarlet Woods. Rhodes the Ranger, along with Mimi the Gnome and a sidekick we haven't met before named Moon, are paired with the centaurs of the Valley. However they handle the situation is up to them, whether it ends in peace or bloodshed. Their goal is to make sure their side feels satisfied with the outcome. Fitzroy says there's a fat chance of their centaur herd being satisfied because they are going to take the apple and turn it into whatever magical applesauce Hagomis needs. <laughs> oh, Griffin. Which is true. They're not going to be very satisfied when no one has an apple. It's true. And now I have this vision of Hagomis making applesauce with the apple. <laughs> and just feeding it to a hero. Yes. Just putting it on a bowl and Hero just like lapping it up and slowly becoming a naked Hieronymus. Oh, I had thought he wasn't wearing clothes. Oh, no. Oh, God. They are on their way to meet Malwin the Strong, the leader of the centaurs of the Scarlet Woods. They rode horses for most of the journey, but they were supposed to dismount and leave the horses behind in the last town before the Great Southern Meadow, so they wouldn't offend the centaurs upon their arrival. Which I, I guess, yeah, the centaurs would be a little offended about horses, I guess. Yeah, I can see why the school's being like cautious about this. They are half So centaurs are always half horse, right? Um yes. I this is a tricky question because I've heard a lot of people in other like fantasy things be like this is like a fish centaur or whatever, like you know like some other type of centaur. So I don't know cuz I've heard of other like half human half other hybrids be referred to as centaur like but I think they all have their own names. Centaurs are only horses, I believe. Yeah, because then, like, if it's a half fish, half person, that's like a mermaid or like a yeah. dryad or something. And then there's like minotaurs, which is half bull, half human. So, like, you can't just say that it's centaur like. They all have their own name. Yeah, no, centaurs are, centaurs are just half human, half horse. So then that does make sense that they'd have to leave their horses behind because yeah. half their. Half of their existence is a horse, and like, how would you feel if they rode up on domesticated horses? Yeah, I don't know. It's a gray area. Yeah. But Clint asks very inappropriately which half of the centaurs they would offend. And Travis says this isn't cat dog, <laughs> it's one mind and one creature, not two creatures sharing a body. He even was like, I need, I need you to understand that this isn't cat dog. <laughs> They are walking the remaining two miles, and Travis encourages scheming and discussions. Fitzroy whines and complains about the distance they have to walk, and the fear bulb refuses to hear them scheme because he can't maintain the lie. And Justin actually just takes off the headphones so that he doesn't know it either. Which I thought was a really cool move from their part to where Justin also won't know. Yeah. It's easier to play that way as a player, I will say. I agree. Yeah, knowing backgrounds and histories of other players beforehand is always tricky. Well, yeah, I... I learned that running my first campaign because I was very like, hey, like, let's talk about what's going on. And because I listen to so much D&D actual play, a lot, almost all of it, they have these big character reveals like in the group. And I was doing that. But then all the other players, when everyone was new, I do want to clarify when people were new and didn't know how to not metagame, would metagame with that information. Mm hmm. And so I eventually transitioned to having private conversations with players and having private sessions with them. And it's been a lot better since. Yeah, it's a lot easier to not know something if you actually don't know it. So I would have done the same thing Justin did and take off my headphones. 
I only uh, have conversations still in public if I want there to be some level of aggressive metagaming. Which there currently is in our our game, and I am stressed out about it. (laughs) Griffin wants to know what the Fearbolg is doing to not overhear them, and he says he's got his fingers in his ears and is humming an old Fearbolg song. But then Fitzroy offers up his game dice set to jam in the ears instead, which is like, what? That's so wild. (laughs) You're going to do what? They put the dice into the Fearbulk's ears, and Justin dutifully removes his headphones. That has to be so uncomfortable for the Fearbulk. Yeah, dice are not comfortable. They're not ear-shaped. No. That's an awful way to to try to block out sound. There's no way that they can... Be effective. No. Argo and Fitzroy aren't sure how they can succeed on pleasing the centaurs and take the apple for Hegelmas, so they're going to have to be very creative in their problem solving. Mm-hmm. Argo wants to make sure no one is being hurt by taking the apple, but Fitzroy points out that it sort of dunks on their theological beliefs, so they then move on to maybe they'll kill the spirit of the forest, which (laughs) seems like a pretty big leap to make. Yeah, to go from like, hey, I don't want to offend them, we need to figure out a way to like do this in a good way to let's just kill their god. (laughs) Yeah, let's not dunk on their theological beliefs, so like let's just maybe kill their god. Okay. (laughs) In the meantime, they keep an eye out for apple-shaped pine cones. (laughs) They might be able to use the substitutions for the actual apple. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen an apple-shaped pine cone. They're all... Neither have I, but you know what? Maybe they're super common in Nua. Yeah, I've not been to Nua. It's true. Hello, everyone. It's me, PJ, your tantalizing tag-along. Here, as always, to thank you for tuning in and listening to our podcast. Looks like them Thunderboys got themselves tangled up in a whole heap of complications. Apples to apples, dust to dust. I'm curious how on earth they're going to get through this one. Be here for that solution and more by keeping up with us on social media. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at Talkin' Taz or by searching for Talkin' Taz Podcast. Or go to our website, talkin-taz.pinecast.co for links to those socials as well as all of our episodes. If you're enjoying the show, tell your friends about it and leave a review on iTunes. It really does help. A few notes from this episode. In the episode, Lauren says that the quote, if you dream it, you can do it, is misattributed, which is right. The quote is incorrectly attributed to Walt Disney, when in actuality, it was written by a Disney employee, Tom Fitzgerald, for the Horizon attraction at Epcot. Even the Walt Disney Company themselves now attribute this line to Walt, but Tom gets the credit in my heart. Last week, we left you with a question about suspicious DMs, and boy oh boy, are y'all a suspicious bunch. This week, we'll go back out of D&D. In honor of Lauren learning about combos for the first time, what's your favorite road trip snack? If you're like Lauren and can't handle road trips, what's your favorite trip snack in general? Be it airplane, boat, or prohibitively long walk. Let us know. Now, back to the podcast. They hear a rustle in the brush, which is another great unicorn name if they use it eventually. Rustle in the brush. Yeah, breeze through the willows, rustle in the brush. Islands in the stream. <laughs> Uh, but they hear this rustle behind them and a polite throat clearing. A satyr steps into the clearing with a hand raised in a wave. The Thundermen remove the dice from the Fearbulk's ears, to which he says this is improved and the dice are not usable again. Yeah, that's pretty gross. The Fitzroy leaves him on the forest floor. The satyr says he's fallen on hard times and asks if they might have anything to spare for him, and Fitzroy rolls insight, which he doesn't roll well on at all. So he offers the satyr some of their road snack combos, since they don't have any money to spare. I love combos. That is one of my go-to road trip snacks. Okay, when I when I heard combos, I was in I was imagining like a fast food combo. No, no, no. He means like combos, like the snacks. 
I don't know what those are. I've never been on a road trip. I get very, very carsick. I'm shook. Combos are the best. Combos are like pretzels filled with like different. It's a filling. Like it's the same filling every time, but they have a completely different flavor. Like there's one that tastes just like pizza. Combos are just like a phenomenal road trip snack. And it's just, it's almost like commonplace. Like if you're going on a road trip, odds are you have some combos in the car. I'll say I've been on like two or three road trips that were pretty long and I almost always had combos with me. So is this like a a common name or is this the name of the snack itself? That's the name of the snack. It's a combos. It's, oh, I learned another thing today. I learned a big word from Travis and I learned about combos. There you go. You're one of today's 10,000. Yay. Look at me. Fitzroy tosses him some rations, and the satyr says he'll also take their valuable possessions and draws a short sword, which he levels at the three of them. The fear bulk doesn't understand what is happening, saying since the satyr is in need, they should just give them what they have. There's your communist king. <laughs> There's the communist king. <laughs> Fitzroy asks if the satyr is a Jean Valjean type, who is stealing bread to survive, or if he's just a dastard. Not a bastard, a dastard. I've not heard dastard before, but I like am super into it. But I guess it would be a word because if you can be dastardly, you could be a dastard. That's true, where the opposite of disgruntled is gruntled, <laughs> which I hate but also love. The satyr then whistles, causing the boys to make deck saving throws, which all of them succeed on, diving out of the way from a boulder which was thrown by what they had taken to be a tree in the shadows. An ogre then lumbers out towards them, and we roll initiative. Oh my god! Fitzroy casts an ice chromatic orb towards the satyr, which hits and deals some decent damage. Argo does a two-weapon attack with Florence and his rapier on the satyr. Both attacks hit, and he's looking rough. The satyr attacks Argo, which hits, but Argo uses his uncanny dodge ability to half the damage. The satyr then moves away, which allows for an attack of opportunity from Argo, and Argo kills him, taking his short sword with him. For a combat that was a surprise, it went very quickly. Yeah. Master Fearbog then casts Charm Person on the ogre, which succeeds, so the ogre regards the Fearbog as a friendly acquaintance. The Fearbog lectures the ogre, whose name is Ogre, on some business <laughs> knowledge, saying there could be a market for his inclination to hurt people, but he should abandon attacking people on the road. He suggests a Tybo class, or an exterminator, or something of the like. Ogre, because again, that's his name. That's his name. Asks if it's okay if he eats the satyr's body, and the boys leave him there. That's so... Oh my god! This, like, surprise encounter with, like, a satyr and an ogre lasted not even a full round. Not even a full round. Like, between <laughs> two Because the turns, ogre didn't even get to go. The ogre didn't get to go at all. And yeah. between three turns, they killed one enemy. And yeah. then they were able to charm the other one. So, like, okay. The Thundermen are greeted by Deanna, Malwin's second in command. Fitzroy introduces them as the Thunderman LLC, apologizing immediately for the breaches of etiquette they will inevitably stumble into with their centaur culture. Deanna says her herd isn't as uptight as the centaurs of the valley. Deanna says she was sent to keep them safe from a satyr and ogre who had been attacking travelers. And the Fearbulk <laughs> says they are now pursuing different business opportunities. Which is like a great way of saying one of them's dead. <laughs> one of them is dead and the other one is eating him currently. Yeah. <laughs> She escorts them back to the centaur camp. Fitzroy asks what the centaurs would like to use the apple for, and Deanna says they live in the Scarlet Woods and sacrifice the apple to the spirit of the Scarlet Woods to provide them protection and good hunts. The fact that the apple is unique and comes from a sacred tree is what makes it so worthy of an offering. When they ask about the spirit of the Scarlet Woods, 
She says it has never been seen before, but they witness its power in the nature that surrounds them. That's like a typical religion. Yeah, it's typical like druidic religion. Yeah. They reach the encampment with two camps set up equidistant from the tree, both with their banners. The tree is beautiful, but also difficult to look at because it's too perfect. So it seems to be a contradiction to the nature that it surrounds it. The centaurs each have sentinels that keep an eye on the tree, and the centaurs of the woods have set up tripwires to inform them if anyone tries to lower the magical barrier so no one can take the apple without the other camp's involvement. Mm-hmm. So obviously the boys can't just steal it. Yeah, that's clearly not an option. You can't just sneak out and steal it. You have to get really crafty. Travis was like, God, I need to figure out everything I can do so that Argo doesn't just use his plus 10 stealth and get out of here. Which I think Clint probably would have. Yeah, He's and I mean, this is what you should way. do. Like, as a DM, your response to someone in your party having strong powers should never be like, oh, I hate you for being strong. It should be like, let me balance the game around it. Oh, you are the best at sinking? Well, guess what? The enemy's the best at looking. Exactly. It's finding a way to still keep it interesting while complementing what your player has. Or in this case, finding a way to negate it by saying you can't sneak up to this tree because if you do, you're going to go through a magic tripwire. And I mean, they can always still try, right? Like Argo could still try to sneak up, but it's probably going to be a stealth check for the center a, a stealth check for each of the sentinels is probably going to be like two to three if not four dex checks for the tripwire mm-hmm. then all of that all over again if he succeeds to get out exactly. so like, there's a strong chance of failure and it's not to say don't do it but it's more like i have a thing planned for you here maybe go through it exactly which <laughs> i if think if you don't want to just keep rolling real well and maybe you'll succeed yeah which i like that that option like you could do it it's gonna be really hard but you can do it the center herds sometimes team up in battle against other enemies but they seem to be very antagonistic towards one another Rhodes, mimi and moon all approach the thundermen fitzroy says their centaurs are loud and are pretty racist towards the other centaur herd and rose says <laughs> it's the same with their herd Rhodes asks if they want to establish ground rules like no direct sabotage from classes the boys have taken in previous offstage interactions Rhodes is pretty straightforward so this offer seems genuine so no one will sabotage the other. Though, I mean, I would argue stealing the apple isn't technically trying to sabotage them, but it will sabotage them. Yeah, ultimately, I don't. I think the Thundermen are saying, yeah, we won't directly sabotage you, but we're going to have to do something because we need that apple. Moon is on the smallish pale side, and he's sullen. He's not making a ton of eye contact, and his hair hangs in his face. We haven't seen him around before, so we assume he's a transfer or a new student. Fitzroy introduces himself and the other Thundermen, and he says it's nice to meet them, but seems, as Travis said, sullen. He's a very emo boy. He's such a little emo boy. Fitzroy then asks what the game plan is so far, and Rhodes says the centaur of the valley, take the apple, do a ceremony, cut it in half, and then divine what the year will hold and bury back at the root of the tree. Rhodes pitches the idea where the centaurs of the valley get to split the apple, then give it to the centaurs of the woods to have it burned. Which, if that was... If we didn't need the apple, that would have been my pitch too. But yeah, no, that's a great phenomenal idea. Both people technically get what they want. Exactly. Except, yeah, they wouldn't be able to bury the apple under the tree like they always do. But at least both of them would get a magic apple. But that's not the only obstacle in our way. As if that's going to happen, Malwin and Arturis would need to be in the same camp to talk about it. And they haven't talked to each other in 50 years. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is another 50-year gap. Like, last 
Everything's week. 50 years. Yeah. It did more than just like the Godscar chasm happen or like was that the cause of all of this or like there was the Godscar chasm and then the relationship chasm between Arturus and Malware. <laughs> The fear bulk seems interested in healing the divide, and Rhodes agrees, saying maybe it's a good thing, and Fitzroy says they should arrange a good old-fashioned summit. Fitz offers that the fear bulk can investigate the tree to see if he can divine why it's only produced one apple, while Fitzroy and Argo go talk to Malwin, and Rhodes' party go talk to Arturus. Argo says he likes the plan of having the centaurs both using the apple, but the last step of the plan, the burning of the apple, is where they're going to have to substitute something else. Fitzroy suggests a sack of dirt that's similar. Fitzroy says he could also use Mage Hand to grab the apple from the fire if needed, and that they can just kind of glue it together. <laughs> well, hey, we have established that the Fear Bulk had some pocket glue, so... He still probably has some pocket glue. He did give some to Breeze Through the Willows, but, you know, pocket glue is a gift that keeps on giving. It does, and maybe there's just enough left to glue Put together. Put apple back together. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think that would compromise the apple? Mixing it uh, with glue? I don't glue? think so, because I think at the I mean, it might compromise the spell as in there's glue as a component now that's not supposed to be there. Yeah, so that could, like, that could mess it up. But I mean, I guess you could scrape off the glue. I don't know. It's a dumb plan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's all I'm saying. I haven't heard anything that's been, like, great yet. Fitzroy and Argo meet back up with Deanna, and she sends their sentinel with the fear bulk to the tree since no one can approach the tree alone. The fear bulk starts with a nature check on the tree, and he knows it's definitely not naturally occurring that someone created this tree to make these apples. But it is a living tree. There's no way to know why it was created or when the centaurs found it. It's abnormally pristine without any bugs or anything on it. The fear bulb then does an arcana check, and we learn that there isn't a specific school of magic that this tree's magic fits into, which is super weird. That is super weird. Like, who and what made this tree to where it doesn't fit into any magic that exists? Can I also say, this is such a weird thing, but this is the second D&D actual play podcast where there has been a subplot about trees that are all a little too perfect and naturally not naturally occurring that I've listened to. What's the other one? It happened at Dungeons and Daddies. Did it really? It did. And I was like, while I was listening to this, I was like, is this like a fantasy trope I don't know about? <laughs> a tree that's too perfect and like... Yeah, I guess. Huh. But nevertheless, Master Fearbulk then investigates the roots and doesn't notice anything odd about them. Griffin says he's flexing the little gray cells, which I didn't understand what that was a reference to. Oh, that is a reference to Poirot. It's um, he's a Belgian detective. Ag- Agatha Christie is the oh, author. I do know this. Yes, I never, I've never read it or seen it, but I know it exists. Yeah. So the boys keep referencing like little gray cells, and Travis at one point mentioned Poirot. So. They're clearly fans. Heck yeah. So we've established that both Sherlock Holmes and Poirot both exist in this universe. <laughs> I'm just saying. It's all detect. Any type of detective exists in this world. All detectives exist in this world. Travis then asks if Justin's investigation was fruitless. Uh, 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 uh. No, no, thank you. We cut back to the camp where Deanna has led Argo and Fitzroy to meet Malwin the Strong. Her tent has a pleasant earthy aroma and it's warm. There's a table with snacks and a tea service, and Malwin is standing at the table with an elven woman with autumn red hair. Malwin introduces herself, and Althea Song greets them. Oh, my God. Oh, of course. Althea heard everything. Yeah, Althea knows. And now she's here because she heard what they're planning on doing. And so she came to meet up with the boys to, like, stop them, I'm help so, them. Uh, when, when they revealed Althea, I was like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Same. Oh, my God. No, I was 
freaking out. I was sitting in my room, just like not screaming, screaming because of the dogs, but like very scared. Yeah. Althea says that she would like to observe a real world assignment in action, but she's only there to watch and listen as the episode fades. Oh my God. There is an after credit scene, but it's not a graduation scene. It's just the McElroys. And Travis is checking to see if he has enough time to keep doing the episode uh, or if he needs to go pick up his Invisalign retainer. And Justin jokes that if Travis has to stop playing D&D to go get his retainer, he is going to officially regain his virginity, which I would agree (laughs) with. There's nothing more nerdy than, hey, guys, I need to stop playing D&D real quick. I need to go get my retainer. (laughs) I mean, it's a really good point. Oh, these boys. I loved it so much. It's so funny. And I love this episode. This was a really good one. I'm really excited to see what the boys are going to do with this assignment because we have our own secret assignment underneath this already very difficult negotiation that they're going to have to be doing. Yeah. So I'm excited to see where it goes. Yeah. But we'll have to wait till next week to find out. That's all we have for you guys this week. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and we hope you'll tune in again next week. But until then, I've been PJ. I've been Lauren. And we'll see you next Thursday when we are once again talking Taz.